Chapter 6 Burning the HIV Heretics Why they did it, he says, I cannot figure out. Nobody in their right mind would jump into this thing like they did. The Secretary of Health just announcing to the world like that that this man Robert Gallo, wearing those dark sunglasses, had found the cause of AIDS. It had nothing to do with any well-considered science. There were some people who had AIDS, and some of them had HIV, not even all of them. So they had a correlation. So what? Carrie Mullis, Ph.D., Nobel Laureate, PCR Inventor. In 1991, seven years after Robert Gallo's May 1984 article in Science, Harvard microbiologist Dr. Charles Thomas organized the Eminence Greases of Virology and Immunology to formally register their objections to Gallo's HIV hypothesis in an historical letter to Nature. The group was a who's who of international scientific doyens and Nobel laureates, among them Dr. Walter Gilbert of Harvard, PCR inventor Kerry Mullis, Yale mathematician Serge Lang, a member and watchdog of the National Academy of Sciences, Dr. Harry Rubin, professor of cell biology at UC Berkeley, Dr. Harvey Bialy, co-founder of Nature Biotechnology, Bernard Forscher, Ph.D., retired editor of Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and many others. The letter was only four sentences long. It is widely believed by the general public that a retrovirus called HIV causes a group of diseases called AIDS. Many biomedical scientists now question this hypothesis. We propose a thorough reappraisal of the existing evidence for and against this hypothesis to be conducted by a suitable independent group. We further propose that the critical epidemiological studies be devised and undertaken. It seemed like a reasonable request. These esteemed researchers were only asking for the open debate and investigation about an extremely consequential scientific assertion that had somehow never occurred. But in an early display of Dr. Fauci's and Big Pharma's combined power to control the medical journals, Nature declined to publish the letter, nor would New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, or The Lancet. These journals rely on the pharmaceutical industry for upward of 90% of their revenues and seldom publish studies that threaten the pharma paradigm. As Lancet editor Richard Horton has observed, the journals have devolved into information laundering operations for the pharmaceutical industry. Dr. Fauci exercises direct influence on the content that appears in their journals. Control of peer-reviewed publishing is a vital ingredient for constructing orthodoxies. When Nature rejected the letter, Thomas and Bialy subsequently organized a consortium, the Group for Scientific Reappraisal of HIV-AIDS Hypothesis, and in 1992 Thomas called it tantamount to criminal negligence for scientists to remain silent. Of the 53 who had signed by June 1992, 12 had MDs and 25 had PhDs. 
Twenty of the 53 gave academic affiliations with departments like physiology, biochemistry, medicine, pharmacology, toxicology, and physics. Over 2,600 people, including three Nobel laureates, Walter Gilbert, Kerry Mullis, and two-time winner Linus Pauling, and 188 reputable PhDs added their signatures. Rethinking AIDS website lists more than 2,000 distinguished members at www.rethinkingaids.com. But the steady flow of money from NIAID was already annealing Gallo's viral hypothesis into ironbound orthodoxy, and those dissenting voices met the hardened steel of fortified institutional resistance. Tony Fauci's loosened purse strings had launched the HIV gold rush, and the government virologists and pharmaceutical PIs had circled their stagecoaches around Gallo's sketchy hypothesis and were lined up for handouts at the NIAID chuck wagon. They've got to hold on to HIV. Why, observed Dr. Charles Thomas dolefully, to hold on to their funding. Scratching his head, Kerry Mullis commented, there's something wrong here. It's got to be financial. He explained, the mystery of that damn virus, he says, has been generated by the $2 billion a year they spend on it. You take any other virus and spend $2 billion, and you can make up some great mysteries about it, too. Peter Duisberg among the scientists who added their name to the later version of the letter was an iconoclastic German-born prodigy with twinkling eyes, a biting wit, a boyish face, and a ready smile. In the 1970s and 1980s, molecular biologist Professor Peter Duisberg, born December 2, 1936, was a demigod of molecular biology and among the world's best-known and highly respected scientists. The National Institutes of Health, NIH, generously supported his virology and cancer research. In 1986, NIH awarded Duisburg its Special Cancer Fellowship, as well as the highly coveted Outstanding Investigator Grant, which the agency reserves for the top scientists in the country. NIH designed the seven-year grant, to allow gifted scientists to push the boundaries of their specialties by removing the pressures of grant writing. The elite National Academy of Sciences inducted Duisburg into its Scientist Hall of Fame at the age of 50, making him one of its youngest members ever. At the University of California, Berkeley, Duisburg became the first to map the genetic structure of retroviruses like HIV making him among the world's most renowned retrovirologists. A retrovirus is a primitive life form that has no capacity to replicate on its own, as is true of all viruses. The retrovirus injects its RNA into an existing cell, where an enzyme called reverse transcriptase converts viral RNA into DNA, which is then inserted or spliced into the host cell's DNA. Virologists generally believe that retroviruses are harmless, even beneficial, in a symbiotic relationship with humans during three billion years of evolution, providing mobile DNA blocks in the human genome. 
In fact, many of our genes first entered our genome as retroviruses. Some 8 to 10 percent of human DNA is retroviral, says Dr. David Rasnick. That's a hell of a lot. By 1970, at 33, Duisburg won acclaim for having discovered the first cancer-causing gene. Duisburg and his fellow virologist Peter Vogt discovered the so-called oncogene inside a retrovirus that appeared to cause cancer. Duisburg's discovery gave rise to the mutant gene theory and unleashed a boom in a new discipline of cancer research. Colleagues expected Duisburg to win the Nobel Prize. But Duisburg was the consummate scientist, believing researchers ought to experiment and reason from what they observe and ruthlessly question every orthodoxy, including their own. Duisburg therefore subjected his oncogene theory to more rigorous tests than had any of its critics. Before he got the magical call from Stockholm, Duisburg became convinced that his own momentous discovery had been a clinically irrelevant lab fluke. Publicly shrugging off his hypothesis, which had already electrified a new field, Duisburg himself debunked the theory, incinerating his Nobel prospects and his friendship with Peter Vogt. Harvey Bialy, Duisburg's biographer, reports Duisburg saying, I would prefer to be honest even against my own interests. Duisburg was uncompromisingly committed to clean functional proof at a time when electron microscopy and other technologies for detecting new viruses were making biology, particularly the study of viruses, increasingly murky. Fame and finance were driving the frenzy in viral research. With official and commercial encouragement, researchers were blaming newly discovered viruses as the culprits in an assortment of ancient diseases. NIAID and pharmaceutical companies readily funded this research, which often opened a straight path to patentable antivirals. A virologist who convincingly linked a new virus to an existing cancer or disease could enjoy relevance, rich financial remuneration, and professional glory. Pharmaceutical companies were minting profits from a pharmacopoeia of patented antivirals devised by isolating these viruses and identifying compounds that could kill them. Every research scientist was aware of the Nobel Committee's bias toward breakthroughs that boosted pharma's profit potentials. From the outset, Duisburg had nagging doubts about Robert Gallo's findings. From an evolutionary standpoint, it didn't make sense that an ancient retrovirus would attack its human host. Retroviruses in the form of incomplete strands of DNA inserted into human DNA have no metabolism and no proven capacity to digest, reproduce, or evolve. They are not, by accepted definition, a life form. It would be a surprise if evolution had, through some unknown mechanism, transformed any of these into a cancerous or a killer cell. Gallo's outspoken ambitions for the Nobel Prize were notorious. As said in the documentary HIV equals AIDS, fact or fraud, what else would you expect from a person like Gallo, who had studied retroviruses all his life, that he would say that it was a retrovirus causing AIDS? 
That seemed to be the first coincidence that made me wonder whether that was an authentic claim. But to me, it was not a surprise that he would say that. He said it before, that it would cause Alzheimer's or leukemia or neurological diseases, and it failed. So I was not too impressed that this was going to be a winner. Following Gallo's announcement, Duisberg spent 18 months studying every scientific publication on HIV and AIDS. He finally published his observations in the prominent journal Cancer Research in March 1987 in an explosive article with the banal title Retroviruses as Carcinogens and Pathogens, Expectations and Reality. Duisberg's article was a tour de force from the reigning father of retrovirology, calling for sobriety in the booming field that he saw spinning out of control. A young generation of virologists, armed with electron microscopes and other novel instruments, and seeking wealth and career advancement, were pinning retroviruses as the culprits for every malignancy with meager functional or empirical proof or rigorous evidence-based science to explain the mechanism by which they caused disease. Duisberg exploded the idea that retroviruses cause leukemia, cancers in general, and finally AIDS, the cellular opposite of leukemia. He pointed out that, however one feels about the HIV hypothesis, it was a total reversal of the universal consensus about retroviruses before Gallo's April 1984 press conference. Duisberg reminded his colleagues that retroviruses, which have been a part of the human genome for as long as three billion years, are not cytocidal, cell killers. AIDS, Duisberg mused, is a disease of cell death, while leukemia is a disease of cell proliferation. By claiming initially that HIV caused leukemia, and later, AIDS, Gallo was accusing the bug of opposite reactions. Furthermore, Duisberg adds, it would have been the first time that a retrovirus would have been pinned down as a cause of a human disease, or even a disease in wild animals. Duisberg argued that HIV is capable of causing neither cancer nor AIDS. It is instead, he declared, a harmless passenger virus that has almost certainly coexisted in humans for thousands of generations without causing diseases. Duisberg concluded that the creature Gallo claimed to be a pandemic pathogen was simply one of many harmless passenger viruses which innate and adaptive human immunity quickly hold at bay. There are no slow viruses causing AIDS the acid-tongued Duisberg quipped, only slow scientists. HIV is not pathogenic, either in the industrialized world or the third world. Duisberg's cancer research paper was a lengthy, highly technical paper that raised a series of clear, compelling questions, challenging point by point the basis of Gallo's HIV-AIDS hypothesis. Duisberg's opus was a sweeping reality check against overblown claims for retroviruses written by the man who at that point in history was thought to know them better than anybody. Many of his colleagues who studied Duisberg's research came to the same conclusion. Something was terribly wrong with the war on AIDS.
1997, Berkeley's brilliant cell biologist, Dr. Richard Stroman, recalled the impact of Duisburg's elegantly structured arguments in the elite universe of cancer research. It was a remarkable review, and it raised the fundamental issues about virus as a cause of both cancer and immunosuppression, basic questions that haven't been really responded to in any meaningful way in the almost 10 years since the date it was published. Do Retroviruses Cause Diseases? Duisburg's skepticism about HIV-AIDS hypotheses quickly spread across the research community. The most fertile ground for incredulity was among researchers who knew the most about retroviruses. During the late 1990s, diverse teams of elite scientists began working on decoding the human genome. The idea of a cell-killing retrovirus made little sense to them from an evolutionary standpoint. Molecular biologist Harvey Bialy, scientific editor of Nature Biotechnology, remembers where he was when he first heard the news that NCI's Bob Gallo had found the cause of AIDS and that it was a retrovirus. A colleague told me, said Bialy, I was on my way to New York. It was January 1984. I remember laughing. A cytopathic retrovirus? This is just more gallo bullshit, I said. I said, it will never fly. Yali points out, we all have tens of thousands of retroviruses in our germline, and yet none of them has ever been demonstrated to be pathogenic. Yali told Celia Farber that Gallo, Dr. Fauci, and the thousands of researchers that Dr. Fauci funded to develop ways to kill HIV have never explained how Montagnier's virus could possibly be responsible for all the harms and diseases attributed to it. He said it would have been the major single explanation that Gallo's hypothesis would have had to provide in order to be taken seriously. How do you account for the pathogenicity of this sleepy virus that is not a single pathogenic relative and in fact has 98,000 relatives quietly residing in the human germline. Fuck. 98,000 in the germline. Not in your body cells. In your ovaries. Getting passed on from generation to generation for as long as human beings have been on this goddamn planet. Every single one of them is clearly not only not pathogenic, but totally harmless. This is the most powerful proof that what Peter has been saying for 20 years now is absolutely correct. Nobel laureate Kerry Mullis expressed his astonishment at the credulousness of the scientific community. For him, it defied common sense that, after hundreds of years of scientific research, one medical scientist, Bob Gallo, had suddenly discovered the true cause of 30 ancient diseases in the United States and Europe, and a retinue of at least 30 more in Africa, and traced them all to a simple creature with a hundred thousand relations, none of them known to cause any disease. Things don't happen that fast in science, he said. You don't suddenly notice that one new organism is causing every problem. I mean... It was a bizarre thing that happened. It really was. 
it didn't really have any precedence in terms of medicine before that. Unless perhaps you could think of the possession by the devil stuff, right? In that, once you're possessed by the devil, anything that happens to you. So it makes it easier for you to get tuberculosis, and it makes it easier for you to get uterine cancer. It makes it easier for you to get candida albicans. And so all those things can now be called AIDS. Why would anybody do that? Why would any reasonable doctor start lumping together various symptoms into one pile and think all of this is caused by HIV? Christine Majori adds, We have a test, but it's not a test for AIDS. And it's called an HIV test, but it's not a test for HIV. And we have a series of problems that we are calling AIDS, but that doesn't elevate AIDS into a disease. Thirty years later, many, if not most, virologists have come to grudgingly accept, in some part at least, Duisberg's skepticism of the Gallo-Fauci claim that HIV alone could cause AIDS. Most research scientists now, quietly, assume that AIDS must have a multifactorial etiology. Significantly, Dr. Robert Gallo and Dr. Luc Montagnier have placed themselves in this cohort. Dr. Tony Fauci is one of the few exceptions. Other respected scientists took Duisberg's doubts even further than Duisberg. Led by Dr. Eleni Papadopoulos and Dr. Val Turner, the Perth Group in Australia argues that Gallo's claim was altogether specious and that neither Gallo nor Montaigneier had ever succeeded in even isolating a discrete HIV. In my conversations with Turner and Papadopoulos, and in my reading of their paper, I find their arguments clear and convincing. However, I recognize that there are some 50,000 articles on AIDS in the scientific literature. A casual novitiate like myself has little chance of unraveling this Baroque controversy in a vacuum. Without rigorous debate, the public and press must form opinions based upon appeals to authority, a feature of religion, not of democracy or science. Any debate on that battleground will always be won by self-interested government and industry officials who control the bullhorn and the media. Rather than airing and openly debating such critiques, Tony Fauci and his P.I. Army moved actively and effectively to snuff out the careers and silence the arguments of any scientist or journalist who questioned the official canons of the new state theology. Punishing Duisburg On their face, Duisburg's incendiary queries seemed to create an irresistible bulwark against Dr. Fauci's HIV-only hypothesis. Even today, Duisburg's rationales appear so clean, so elegantly crafted, and so compelling that, in reading them, it seems impossible that the entire hypothesis did not instantly collapse under the smothering weight of relentless logic. The scientific world waited to see how doctors Gallo and Fauci could possibly answer Duisburg's devastating questions. But the AIDS cartel never attempted a reply. Instead, Dr. Fauci met this existential assault by simply ignoring it, 
and by castigating anyone who credited it. He set about making Duisburg an example to discourage future inquiries. Dr. Fauci made sure that, in Bialy's words, the article had disastrous professional consequences for Duisburg and sealed his scientific fate for a dozen years. Dr. Fauci orchestrated a fusillade of withering and venomous attacks that effectively ended Duisburg's illustrious career. Dr. Fauci summoned the entire upper clergy of his HIV orthodoxy and all of its lower acolytes and altar boys to unleash a storm of fierce retribution on the Berkeley virologist and his followers. The dispute became one of the most sensational, vicious, and personalized battles in the history of science. Dr. Fauci had a strong stake in the controversy. Blaming AIDS on a virus was the gambit that allowed NIAID to claim the jurisdiction and cash flow away from NCI. Dr. Fauci's career depended on the universal belief that HIV alone causes AIDS. The dispute for him was existential. Led by Dr. Fauci's College of Cardinals, the medical cartel, the emerging highly profitable drug research testing and nonprofit charitable HIV AIDS enterprise, attacked Duisburg and the other dissidents as flat earthers and Holocaust type denialists, or in Dr. Fauci's estimation, murderers. The AIDS establishment, down to its lowliest doctor, publicly reviled Duisburg, NIH defunded him, and academia ostracized and exiled the brilliant Berkeley professor. The scientific press all but banished him. He became radioactive. From his perch at HHS, Dr. Fauci controlled all the levers of power and public opinion. Shortly after Duisburg's cancer research paper's publication, the Office of the Secretary of Health and Human Services, HHS, sent out a memo under the heading Media Alert. HHS announced the imposition of message discipline harking back to the agency's military roots. The HHS directive rebuked the NIH for allowing Duisburg's paper to reach publication in the first place. The article apparently went through the normal pre-publication process and should have been flagged at NIH, it read. This obviously has the potential to raise a lot of controversy, it added ominously. I have already asked NIH Public Affairs to start digging into this. By questioning the official government theology, and especially by clashing with HHS's reigning technocrat, Duisburg would soon see his generous stream of NIH research grants run dry. When Duisburg's seven-year outstanding investigator grant came up for renewal, it was DOA. As usual, Dr. Fauci had stacked the board. The NIH Review Committee included one AIDS researcher with deep financial ties to Glaxo, which manufactured AZT, a drug Duisburg ferociously criticized for its extreme toxicity. And another was Gallo's mistress, a scientist in his lab who had mothered his child. Three reviewers never even read Duisburg's proposal. NIH pulled the grant and never again gave Duisburg a single research dollar. 
Prior to 1987, NIH had never rejected a single one of Peter Duesberg's proposals. After 1987, Duesberg wrote over 30 research proposals. NIH refused every one. The U.S. Military-Industrial Complex, HHS, NIH, NCI, DAIDS, all of it is designed along military command structure because it is, says Celia Farber. It is the military. It's not science and it's not merit. Fauci understands this and has mastered the elimination of both dissent and any mercy for the destroyed. It's a sin, as he has now openly said, to question him, to question science. He's so far gone that he has actually come out and said he is science. I would like Americans to learn who Peter Duesberg is, Farber continues, what his achievements were on cancer genetics, on aneuploidy, and what became of it. I want them to demand answers. Why did Anthony Fauci set out to defund, bully, censor, and destroy America's premier cancer virologist? How do we feel about that? We know how the AIDS activists feel, but how do we feel about it? Most of us have lost at least one family member to cancer and none to AIDS. Anthony Fauci should be brought before a criminal court and stand trial for destroying American science and virology and cancer science. A lot of the destruction was done through the wildly personal destruction of Peter Duesberg, and anybody who tried to take him seriously or even, for that matter, interview him. The true history is emerging now and will emerge. Fauci will go down as a very dark figure, a travesty. He was obsessed with AIDS. Why? America needed this obsession like a hole in the head. All it was was a money trough, a global apparatus of colonial parasitism. We buckled under to Fauci and a handful of shrieking activists. It's truly a tragedy. They just took him out, agrees Richard Stroman, a retired UC Berkeley biologist. Took him right out. A frenzy of anti-Dewsburgism swept the field like grass fire. Duesberg's name became so degraded that debasing him became a means of career advancement. Being seen with him was career suicide for aspiring scientists. The system works, said Dave Rasnick. It's as good as a bullet to the head. In a 1988 interview laced with poison and enraged profanity, Gallo denounced Duesberg for questioning his HIV-AIDS hypothesis. HIV kills like a truck, he hollered. HIV would kill Clark Kent. Duesberg's riposte at the time was that he wouldn't mind being injected with HIV so long as the sample didn't come from Gallo's lab. The scientifically illiterate mass media largely ignored Duesberg's evidence-based arguments as dangerous apostases. Dr. Fauci showcased his easy capacity to control his servile media toadies and mobilize the public health cartel to punish skepticism and dissent. It was a tour de force and an extraordinary preview of his later censorship campaigns. This was a decade before FDA's 1997 
consequential decision to allow pharmaceutical advertising on television. So Dr. Fauci's urgency in quickly summoning the media to obediently fall in line was all the more impressive. Subsumed in the received orthodoxy, fawning media outlets parroted the official caveat of the NIAID Inquisition. To even acknowledge Duisburg's arguments was itself dangerous because it deflected valuable time from the business of saving lives and lent credence to deadly heresy. To mention Duisburg's name was irresponsible journalism. AIDS organizations posted warnings about Duisburg and his fellow denialists on their websites. Project Informs Martin Delaney, living fat by then on Dr. Fauci's payroll, conducted letter-writing and phone campaigns vowing to get every journalist who interviewed Duisburg fired. Delaney would later come around to Duisburg's view that HIV could not solely cause AIDS. It wasn't a particularly time-consuming project. Very few journalists wanted to undertake the risk. As noted earlier, Anthony Fauci personally made sure Duisburg almost never appeared on national television. Dr. Fauci demonstrated his mastery at intimidating TV networks. In one case, Good Morning America had already booked Duisburg and flown him to New York. On the night preceding his appearance, a GMA producer called to say the show was canceled. In the morning, he turned on his hotel TV and saw Anthony Fauci himself on the show. Similarly, Larry King asked Duisburg for a televised interview in 1992 and then abruptly canceled the night before. Dr. Fauci took Duisburg's place at King's table. In 1987, when President Reagan invited Duisburg and Dr. Fauci to the White House for a friendly debate in front of the president, Dr. Fauci forced Reagan to cancel. A member of President Reagan's administration told Duisburg that Anthony Fauci, far from reacting as anticipated, threw a small fit when he was invited and demanded to know why the White House was interfering in scientific matters that belonged to the NIH and the Office of Science and Technology Assessment. Anthony Fauci's uninterrupted flow of millions of dollars to its labs and med school had by the 1980s transformed Berkeley, a mecca for free speech in the 1960s, into an omphalos of reaction and medical heterodoxy. In a pioneering template for cancel culture, the university unceremoniously stripped Duisburg then at the very top of his field, of everything. Government funding, grad students, a proper lab, and invitations to conferences. Only his tenured position prevented Berkeley from ridding itself of the iconoclastic researcher altogether. The university refused to endorse Duisburg's appeal to the NIH of his grant revocation. Without university support, he could not legally proceed. Duisburg has had to hire a lawyer to fight for his standard annual merit pay increase, which usually comes automatically to professors of his stature. UC Berkeley denied Duisburg his raise for over a decade, claiming his work was not of high significance. Wary of ruining their careers, all his grad students abandoned Duisburg. The university warned them that working with Duisburg would make them pariahs. 
All scientific conferences disinvited him. Prominent colleagues demonstrated their rectitude by publicly declaring that they would decline invitations to any conference that included Duisburg. One of his Berkeley colleagues complimented Duisburg lavishly in a private interview with journalist Celia Farber. The colleague praised his integrity, his genius, his kindness, and his intelligence. She protested his shoddy treatment by the university and the scientific establishment, but she insisted that she did not want to be identified in Farber's story, explaining that she feared retribution. Another Berkeley colleague from the Donner Lab explained to Farber the general hesitancy about Duisburg among the faculty. Peter may be right about HIV, but there's an industry now. The scientific press banished Duisburg from publishing. Nature editor John Maddox himself wrote a theatrical editorial stating that Duisburg, by his heresy, had forfeited the standard scientific publishing practice right of reply. Maddox invited Duisburg's colleagues to slander the virologist without fear of response. Anti-Duisburg ambuscades became pro forma in each new edition of Nature. Bialy's biography of Duisburg renders this written record in vivid, often hilarious detail. Even the proceeding of the National Academy of Sciences Journal, PNAS, where members are always invited to publish, crushed a Duisburg paper on HIV after he spent over a year revising and resubmitting it to meet their various editing requests. Colleagues reckless enough to defend Duisburg found themselves in malodor. The virologist Harry Rubin, himself a member of the Academy, suffered toxic vitriol and career injury after he intervened vainly with PNAS to get Duisburg's paper published. In 1992, Duisburg's paper became the second one in the PNAS's 128-year history to be blocked from publication. The other was written by Linus Pauling. Duisburg's problem was one that transcended science. It was career protection to partake in his bullying and degradation, said Farber. The Fauci surf scientists were driven by fear that if they did not denounce Duisburg in sufficiently disgusted tones and very publicly, they would themselves soon be punished by Fauci, possibly defunded or worse. The medical cartel dangled the prizes of redemption and reinstatement before Duisburg if he would only agree to reform. In 1994, a high-ranking NIH geneticist, Dr. Stephen O'Brien, called Duisburg and said he urgently needed to see him about a professional matter. O'Brien flew in from Bethesda the next day, and the two met at the opera in San Francisco. After some small talk about the good old days, O'Brien pulled a manuscript from the inside pocket of his tuxedo. Headlined, HIV Causes AIDS, Koch's Postulates Fulfilled. It had three very incongruous names at the bottom, Stephen O'Brien, William Blattner, and Peter Duisburg. Nature editor John Maddox had commissioned this apologia as inducement. If Duisburg would only sign the mea culpa, O'Brien implored, he could have everything back. He would be back at the top again, 
back in the safe bastion of Dr. Fauci's medical and science establishment, Duisburg refused the bribe. In a 2009 documentary, Duisburg is somewhat empathetic, if not sympathetic, toward his detractors. They are prostitutes, he said, most of them my colleagues, and to some degree, myself. You have to be a prostitute to get money for your research. You're trained a little bit to be a prostitute. He smiles and adds, but some go all the way. Refusal to Debate For several years, journalist John Lauritsen tried to get any scientist at NIH to answer the questions in Duisburg's article. But the orders had come from NIAID that no government scientist should respond. NIH officials repeatedly told Lauritsen that none of the scientists for Robert Gallo in government were interested in discussing the etiology of AIDS. Lauritsen was therefore intrigued when the New York Times reported Tony Fauci's laconic official response to Duisburg's article. The evidence that HIV causes AIDS is so overwhelming that it almost doesn't deserve any discussion anymore. Lauritsen complained to me, As a member of the press, I thought I should have been allowed to speak to Dr. Fauci and ask him to reveal just one or two pieces of overwhelming evidence that HIV is the cause of AIDS. How did he get away with this? His only strategy was to act as if the evidence was so overwhelming that no one should be allowed to question the assertion. Fauci adopted the posture that neither he nor his colleagues had any obligation to reply to Duisburg or any of his other critics. It was the secular version of the doctrine of papal infallibility. Everyone must just accept the AIDS virus theory as a matter of fact, because the public health pope declares it. Harvey Bialy, founding scientific editor of Nature Biotechnology, said, I am very tired of hearing AIDS establishment scientists tell me they are too busy saving lives to sit down and refute Peter Duisburg's arguments, although each one assures me they could do it in a minute if they had to. In 2006, Britain's preeminent epidemiologist Gordon Stewart voiced a similar frustration. I have asked the health authorities, editors-in-chief, and other experts concerned with HIV-AIDS repeatedly for proof of their theses, and I've been waiting for an answer since 1984. Dr. Fauci's own refusal to debate his theories is just the tip of the iceberg. Dr. Fauci's control of his P.I. army gives him the ability to shut down all debate. When National Public Radio attempted to stage a conversation between Duisburg and a supporter of the HIV hypothesis, it could find no one willing to confront him. Critiquing a dubious theory would take time away from more productive efforts, Anthony Fauci, head of NIAID, told NPR producers. When Bialy challenged Dr. John Moore of Cornell University to a debate on AIDS, Moore wrote in reply, Participating in any public forum with the likes of Bialy would give him a credibility that he does not merit. The science community does not debate with the AIDS denialists. It treats them with the utter contempt that they deserve and exposes them for the charlatans that they are. 
Kindly do not send me any further communications on this or any related matter. Such scathing rebuffs infuriated Nobel laureate Kerry Mullis. In 2004, he said, All we have is Bob Gallo saying, Gentlemen, this is the cause of AIDS. That's all we have. That's all we had. That's not enough. That is not sufficient to publish even a meager little scientific paper somewhere, much less a basis to spend millions or billions of dollars a year and the cost of a lot of lives and anguish. Lives have been totally ruined on the basis of some flimsy little statement made by a guy who's known to be a crook in lots of other ways. He lied about a whole lot of other stuff. Why are we trusting him? If he was a witness in a courtroom, we wouldn't trust his testimony. We've caught him in too many lies. We don't trust him anymore. Some twenty years after Gallo's announcement, circumstances finally forced Dr. Fauci to defend his thesis. In 2009, documentarian Brent Leung persuaded Dr. Fauci to submit to a sit-down interview for Leung's feature-length film on the history of AIDS, House of Numbers, Anatomy of an Epidemic. Leung asked an uncomfortable, chafing Dr. Fauci for his best evidence linking HIV to immune deficiency disease. With two decades and $10 billion to prepare his answer, Dr. Fauci's best explanation was the classic Fauci soft shoe. Contemporary Americans will recognize the familiar refrain of double-talking and dissembling that we all now recognize from the NIAID director's COVID-19 interviews. He said, When you put the combined findings of the initial characterization as a distinct retrovirus, isolated by Montagnier and his group, together with Gallo linking the virus to being the cause of AIDS, and they put those things together, that's how we have a confirmation of the causative agent of AIDS namely HIV. Translating all that into regular English, which Charles Ortleb remarked to me with a laugh, takes just three words. Gallo says so. That's what Fauci calls a confirmation. Among Dr. Fauci's skeptics were numerous Nobel laureates, including geneticist Barbara McClintock and chemist Walter Gilbert, who added their voices to the chorus complaining about the lack of scientific proof supporting the HIV-AIDS hypothesis and the inability or unwillingness of health officials to answer fundamental questions. It is good that the HIV hypothesis is being questioned, Gilbert told the Oakland Tribune in 1989. Gilbert acknowledged it is absolutely correct that no one has proven that AIDS is caused by the AIDS virus, and Duisburg is absolutely correct that the virus cultured in the laboratory may not be the cause of AIDS. Mullis, one of the most significant Nobel laureates of the 20th century, died in 2019. People keep asking me, he explained in 1994. You mean you don't believe that HIV causes AIDS? And I say, whether I believe it or not is irrelevant. I have no scientific evidence for it. If there is proof that HIV is the cause of AIDS, there should be scientific documents which either singly or collectively demonstrate that fact, at least with a high probability. There is no such document. 
Mullis observed in 1994 that the financial and career incentives for advancement to any researcher who could demonstrate a formal proof of Dr. Fauci's proposition are so monumentally enormous that the inability of anybody to produce this demonstration is itself compelling evidence that HIV alone does not cause AIDS. If a postdoc were to write a review of the literature that showed without much doubt that HIV was the cause of AIDS, that guy would be famous. There are a hundred thousand guys out there who had the opportunity. Ten years have passed. We've been waiting for this star postdoctoral fellow to distinguish himself forever and get a lifelong grant from Tony Fauci, but he hasn't shown up. No one has bothered to write a definitive review. Any journal would take it. That right there proves that HIV does not cause AIDS. Duisburg's most surprising convert was Luc Montagnier, the man who first discovered the virus. At the San Francisco International AIDS Conference in 1990, Dr. Montagnier made a startling confession about HIV that was clearly against his own interest. HIV might be benign. Montagnier was the father of the AIDS theory. He is also a scientist of integrity. That was his surrender flag. Montagnier's discounting of the HIV-AIDS Association should have been earth-shaking. Instead, the conventioneers, content with the orthodoxy that was paying off handsomely for so many of them, ignored Montagnier's momentous confession and went right on talking about exciting new antiviral drug treatments. Kerry Mullis was astonished that Fauci's dogma had such a powerful hypnotic force that acolytes would ignore its public retraction by the genius who invented it. Years from now, people looking back at us will find our acceptance of the HIV theory of AIDS as silly as we find the leaders who excommunicated Galileo, just because he insisted that the Earth was not the center of the universe, predicts Mullis. It has been disappointing that so many scientists have absolutely refused to examine the available evidence in a neutral, dispassionate way regarding whether HIV causes AIDS. All About the Money Today, the presumption that HIV is the sole cause of AIDS is the central presumption of a multi-billion dollar industry. Everyone agrees that at least part of the explanation for its stupefying resilience is Dr. Fauci's relentless flow of cash. Charles Ortleb observed to me, science costs money, and he who dispenses the money can control the science. Look, there's no sociological mystery here, observed Mullis. It's just people's income and position being threatened by the things Peter Duisburg is saying. Their personal income and positions are being threatened, and that's why they're so nasty. In the 1980s, a lot of people started being dependent on Tony Fauci and his friends for their livelihood. All these people really wanted success in the sense of lots of people working for them and lots of power. Viali agrees. First of all, there are tremendous financial and social interests involved. Billions of dollars in research funding, stock options, and activist budgets are predicated on the assumption 
that HIV causes AIDS. Entire industries of pharmaceutical drugs, diagnostic testing, and activist causes would have no reason to exist. The 2004 documentary, The Other Side of AIDS, includes a remarkable scene in which Canadian P.I. Mark Weinberg, M.D., president of the International AIDS Society, the world's largest organization of AIDS researchers and clinicians, angrily calls for Duisburg and others who attempt to dispel the notion that HIV is the cause of AIDS to be brought up on trial. He considers HIV AIDS skeptics perpetrators of death. I suggest to you that Peter Duisburg is the closest thing we have on this planet to a scientific psychopath. Then he declares the interview over, rips the microphone from his lapel, and storms off. What happened next was revealing. The audience erupted in laughter, which turned to boos as the screen flashed a list of Weinberg's patents and other financial ties to the HIV industry. Other Causes If HIV doesn't cause AIDS, one is bound to ask, then what does? Leading scientists have advanced multiple credible theories to account for AIDS pathogenesis. I will examine three of the most compelling, beginning with Duisburg's theory, since his explanation arrived first chronologically and inspired the largest and most influential following. Subsequent theories, including hypotheses promoted ironically by Robert Gallo and Luc Montagnier, have equal persuasive power but enjoyed meager public interest or support. Duisburg's battle royal had demonstrated Dr. Fauci's sizable power to destroy careers, and no one after Duisburg had the courage and appetite to challenge the little director by advancing new theories. Duisburg Theory Duisburg, Mullis, and their school of critics blame all the lethal symptomology known as AIDS on a multiplicity of environmental exposures that became ubiquitous in the 1980s. The HIV virus, this group insists, was a kind of free rider that was also associated with overlapping lifestyle exposures. Duisburg and many who have followed him offered evidence that heavy recreational drug use in gay men and drug addicts was the real cause of immune deficiency among the first generation of AIDS sufferers. They argued that the initial signals of AIDS, Kaposi's sarcoma and pneumocystis carinii pneumonia, PCP, were both strongly linked to amyl nitrite, poppers, a popular drug among promiscuous gays. Other common wasting symptoms were all associated with heavy drug use and lifestyle stressors. Those interested in exploring the debate should read Chapter 3, Virus Hunting Takes Over, of Duisburg's riveting book, Inventing the AIDS Virus. Suffice it to say that Duisburg makes a compelling case, and his arguments deserve to be aired and civilly debated. Dr. Duisburg observed that critical AIDS cases in the 1980s were among men engaged in behaviors then commonplace in the post-Stonewall drug-charged gay party scene. Risk factors included promiscuous sex with multiple partners and cumulative toxic exposures from psychoactive drugs including methadrine, 
cocaine, heroin, LSD, and a cocktail of antibiotics prescribed to treat ubiquitous sexually transmitted diseases. On average, the early AIDS patients had been on at least three antibiotics courses in the year preceding diagnosis. Some 35% of early AIDS cases were among IV drug users. In his paper, The Role of Drugs in the Origin of AIDS, Duisberg cites over a dozen medical references documenting AIDS-like immunodeficiency symptoms among drug addicts since 1900. The medical literature attests to the ravaging effects of heroin, morphine, speed, cocaine, and other injected drugs on the immune system. From as early as 1909, evidence has accumulated that addiction to psychoactive drugs leads to immune suppression, clinical autoimmunity, similar to AIDS. Today, thousands of American junkies who are not infected with HIV are losing the same CD4 plus T cells and getting the same diseases as AIDS patients. STDs from promiscuous sex and blood-borne diseases like hepatitis A, B, and C added to the immune suppression among this cohort. Duisberg's theory was by no means novel or outlandish. Dr. Fauci himself conceded in 1984 that drugs were a reasonable explanation for PCP and other signature symptoms of AIDS. If I were to take drugs, he said, that would markedly immunosuppress me, there would be a reasonably good chance that I would get that pneumonia. That's what happens to the AIDS individuals. Poppers and Drugs Prior to Gallo's discovery of HIV, the initial guess by government researchers and leading scientists was that recreational drugs were the prime suspects. Duke Medical School's renowned infectious disease expert, Professor David Durek, who served on NIH's Bioethics Committee, asked the still-relevant question in his lead article in the December 1981 New England Journal of Medicine, How Can AIDS Be So Evidently New When Viruses and Homosexuality Are As Old As History? Recreational drugs, according to Durek, should be considered as causes. They are widely used, he said, in the large cities where most of these cases have occurred. Perhaps, as suggested, one or more of these recreational drugs is an immunosuppressive agent. Durek observed that, other than drug-using homosexuals, the only patients with AIDS symptoms were junkies. In Duisberg's view, the highest risk addiction was the ubiquitous use of amyl nitrite poppers, which had well-established links with autoimmune disease. The first AIDS cases were five gay men, all unknown to one another, diagnosed with a rare PCP pneumonia and Kaposi sarcoma, a form of cancer that had previously afflicted only elderly men. In Los Angeles in 1981, Dr. Michael Gottlieb, a researcher searching California hospitals for new diseases with unusual symptomology, is credited with the initial discovery and characterization of the disease and its epidemiologic context. The men were all promiscuous party enthusiasts in the fast-lane gay lifestyle. 
They were taking many different recreational drugs simultaneously and combining drugs in excess of patterns among straight drug users. They frequented bars, clubs, and bathhouses. They had daily multiple anonymous sexual partners, upward of a thousand per year, and contracted most of the common sexually transmitted diseases like syphilis, gonorrhea, and hepatitis B. They were therefore also functionally addicted to a pharmacopoeia of antibiotic prescription medications. All of that created a situation where a handful of gay men, says Mark Gabrish Conlon, were burning the candle at both ends and putting a blowtorch to the middle. It's no wonder that after a while their immune systems started to collapse and they started getting sick in these unusual ways that previously had only been seen in older people whose immune systems had deteriorated from age. John Lauritsen, a gay activist, was probably the longest-running AIDS journalist. My first major AIDS article was in 1985, he said. The very early AIDS cases were really quite sick, and there were very good reasons why they were sick. Lauritsen and many leading medical researchers and government health officials concluded early in the epidemic that poppers were the lead culprit. Chemists developed amyl nitrite as a vasodilator in the 1850s and began in the 1960s packaging it in glass ampules that doctors would pop open under the noses of unconscious patients to reanimate them. That same mechanism that prompted reanimation provided the relaxation of the anal musculature and a powerful rush that made poppers the reigning sex drug. Poppers became a mainstay of the gay social scene in the late 1970s. Prior to 1987, every AIDS patient acknowledged heavy consumption of poppers. Every porn shop, bar, and bathhouse locker room sold poppers. Party gays huffed them continuously in dance clubs and during extreme sex. The saloons and dance halls reeked of their pungent chemical aroma. At the end of each evening, bartenders routinely announced, Last call for alcohol. Last call for poppers. Researchers believe poppers to be the direct cause of Kaposi's sarcoma, a rare form of skin cancer that afflicts the nose, throat, lungs, and skin. Kaposi's sarcoma was the initial indicator disease of AIDS, but it was also common in gay men who were not infected with HIV. Poppers can severely damage the immune system, genes, lungs, liver, heart, or the brain. They can produce neural damage similar to that of multiple sclerosis, can have carcinogenic effects, and can lead to sudden sniffing death. I discovered there was a very extensive medical literature on the volatile nitrites, Lauritsen explains. The simplest thing is that they are very powerful oxidizing agents, which is part of AIDS causes, in fact, several types of anemia. Secondly, poppers are powerfully mutagenic and carcinogenic, meaning that they cause cellular changes and cancer. One of my informants, Filson, who was very active and outgoing in the People with AIDS Coalition, claimed that he had interviewed several hundred gay men with AIDS, and he said that virtually all of them had been heavy users of drugs. They said without a single exception.
they had all been poppers users. A study published by Toby Eisenstein showed that nitrites found in poppers are radically immunosuppressive in rodents. Government researchers and regulatory officials supported the association. Prior to Gallo's announcement, CDC had targeted poppers as the likely culprit for AIDS. A year before Gallo's announcement, CDC's in-house AIDS expert Harry Haverkos analyzed three surveys of AIDS patients conducted by the CDC. He concluded that drugs like poppers played a key role in the disease onset. L.T. Sigel wrote in the American Journal of Psychiatry that the inhaled nitrites produced nitrosamine, known for its carcinogenic effects. Thomas Haley of the Food and Drug Administration issued the same warning. Following Gallo's 1984 press conference, Dr. Fauci launched a mission to quash all conversation about cofactors like poppers. The CDC quickly fell in line. The CDC shelved the Haverkos study and began parroting Dr. Fauci's hostility toward the drug connection. The CDC actively suppressed disagreeable data and published one of its signature junk science papers to prove poppers safe. The CDC researchers assumed that gays used poppers as single-use reanimators and exposed laboratory mice to lifetime doses a thousandth of what a gay man would get in one evening on the party circuit. The study was utterly fraudulent, remarks Lauritsen. Haverkos transferred to the FDA in 1984 to become AIDS coordinator there. His paper finally appeared in the journal Sexually Transmitted Diseases in 1985, prompting the Wall Street Journal to pen an article arguing that substance abuse was so universal among AIDS patients that drug use and not Dr. Fauci's virus must be considered the primary cause of AIDS. According to Randy Schiltz, writing in his classic history of the AIDS crisis and the ban played on, the popper's starting point offers a compelling explanation for AIDS. Everybody who got diseases seemed to snort poppers, writes Schiltz. As I wrote this book, children's health defense researcher Robin Ross Esquire alerted me to one of the unheralded ironies of this saga. As it turns out, Burroughs' welcome holds the 1942 patent on the popper container and remained one of the largest manufacturers of poppers during the 1980s and 90s. As early as 1977, a New York Daily News article described Burroughs' welcome strategies for dodging criticism of widespread health injuries from its booming popper sales. As we shall presently see, Burroughs' welcome and other popper manufacturers were the principal sources of advertising revenues to the gay press during that epoch, and they used that leverage to force censorship of any journalist attempting to link amyl nitrite to immune system collapse. If Duesberg and others are correct about that association, it means that Burroughs' welcome was profiting from both causing the AIDS epidemic and then from poisoning a generation of gay men with the AZT cure. Tony Fauci played traffic cop in this feedback loop. On the one hand, 
he was using his regulatory authority to promote AZT and to kill its competition, effectively orchestrating Burroughs Welcome's monopoly control over AIDS treatment. At the same time, he was suppressing the study of the toxicity of paupers and directing the blame for AIDS on the virus, thereby shielding Burroughs Welcome from significant liability. Kaposi's Sarcoma In 1990, four leading scientists at the CDC suggested in The Lancet that Kaposi's sarcoma was common in young gay men who indisputably did not have HIV. They concluded that KS, the disease most central to the definition of AIDS, may be caused by an as-yet-unidentified infectious agent transmitted mainly by sexual contact. This was a stunning development, because KS was the initial and defining symptom of AIDS. Prior to 1981, KS was a disease limited to very old people. Its sudden appearance in young men was the identifying signal that launched the AIDS crisis. It was fundamental doctrine within the medical establishment that KS was the diagnostic signal of the AIDS pandemic. The very existence of AIDS was inextricably linked to KS. If HIV was not responsible for the outbreak of Kaposi's sarcoma, then there had to be another culprit. That insurmountable logic raised the question of whether paupers might also be causing the other symptoms of AIDS particularly the other major manifestation, immunosuppression, which science also linked to amyl nitrite. While publicly cleaving to Dr. Fauci's official HIV-AIDS orthodoxy, Robert Gallo himself privately signaled doubts about his own theory that HIV alone can cause either Kaposi's sarcoma or AIDS. At a high-level meeting of U.S. health authorities in 1994 titled Do Nitrites Act as a Cofactor in Kaposi's Sarcoma, Gallo made some astonishing confessions to his trusted colleagues. HIV, he acknowledged, might only be a catalytic factor in Kaposi's. There must be something else involved. Then he added a breathtaking concession which could have been taken from the very research in Duisburg's article. I don't know if I made this point clear, but I think that everybody here knows we never found HIV DNA in tumor cells of KS, so this is not directly transforming. And in fact, we've never found HIV DNA in T cells, although we've only looked at a few. So in other words, We've never seen the role of HIV as a transforming virus in any way. One attendee of that meeting was Harry Haverkos, by then director of the AIDS department at National Institute on Drug Abuse, NIDA. Haverkos observed to Gallo that not a single case of Kaposi's sarcoma had been reported among blood recipients where the donor had Kaposi's sarcoma. If blood transfusions couldn't spread the disease, Haverkos said, then semen exchanges could hardly be a plausible culprit. In response, Gallo allowed, the nitrites, poppers, could be the primary factor. To fully appreciate the seismic implications of Gallo's statement, 
We must recall that, in wealthy nations like the United States and Germany, Kaposi's sarcoma was, along with PCP, the signature disease for diagnosing patients with AIDS. In 1987, for example, Der Spiegel described AIDS patients as the sarcoma-covered skeletons from the same-sex scene. By 1990, government regulators were already scrambling to drop Kaposi's sarcoma from the AIDS definitions. At present, it is accepted, even by CDC scientists, that HIV plays no role, either directly or indirectly, in the causation of Kaposi's sarcoma, wrote Australian biologist and AIDS expert Eleni Papadopoulos in 2004. This was a momentous bait-and-switch. Kaposi's was the AIDS-defining illness. In the beginning, says Farber, AIDS was Kaposi's sarcoma. Because its association with AIDS was so well-established, the official concession that the two conditions are distinct has never penetrated the reigning orthodoxy. Kaposi's sarcoma remains part of the official AIDS definition in industrialized countries. Anyone with KS and a positive test result counts as an AIDS patient. And contrary to the facts, mainstream media outlets like The New Yorker still report that Kaposi's sarcoma is a sign of AIDS, i.e., HIV causes KS. AZT as culprit. After 1987, Dr. Duisberg and his followers argue the vast majority of AIDS deaths were actually caused by AZT, Dr. Fauci's radical antiretroviral chemotherapy purposefully concocted to kill human cells. Duisberg describes the syndrome as AIDS by AZT. Ironically, he argued AZT the highly toxic medication that Dr. Fauci was prescribing to treat AIDS patients actually does what the virus cannot, that is, it causes AIDS itself. In a rational universe populated by critical thinkers, Duisberg's suspicion that AZT causes immune collapse should never have seemed revelatory. The FDA, after all, had deemed AZT too toxic to use for even short-term cancer therapy. AZT is highly mutagenic, meaning that it destroys the genes themselves. It causes cancer in rodents. It targets the bone marrow where blood cells called lymphocytes are made. These are the very cells that an AIDS patient needs most for immunity. AZT randomly destroys bones, kidneys, livers, muscle tissue, the brain, and the central nervous system. Cancer patients typically take chemo drugs for only two weeks. Thanks to Tony Fauci's official study, doctors were now prescribing AZT for life. Chemotherapy, says Duisberg, is restricted to a few months. The hope is that the cancer dies before you die. Duisberg believes that AZT was not only causing AIDS, it was killing more people than had previously been dying from autoimmunity caused by recreational drugs. AZT is causing AIDS and its defining diseases, he said. It doesn't cause Kaposi's sarcoma, but it does cause immune deficiency. It was designed to do that. 
In fact, the manufacturer says specifically that it can cause AIDS-like diseases. Burroughs welcomes insert warns that it is often difficult to distinguish adverse events possibly associated with administration of retrovir, AZT, from underlying signs of HIV disease or intercurrent illnesses. In other words, even the company acknowledges that AZT causes the diseases that define AIDS. If you start taking any other chemotherapeutic agent for the rest of your life, it would be that agent probably to kill you, Carrie Mullis observed. When you give chemotherapy to somebody with cancer, you give them a round of it for maybe 14 days or a few days. Hopefully you're not going to kill the patient. You're going to kill the cancer. Patient's going to survive. But you don't keep giving it to him until he dies, because he certainly will. Luc Montagnier makes this same point about HIV. Any drug active on HIV will be toxic because it's not 100% specific of the HIV enzymes. If Duisburg is right, AIDS is an iatrogenic, doctor-caused pandemic, and Dr. Fauci would be its author. It wouldn't be the first one. Historically, there are many examples of prescribed medicines causing worse injuries than their target disease. The notorious Tuskegee experiment, 1932 to 1973, which my uncle, Senator Ted Kennedy, exposed and ended in 1973, began as an effort by public health regulators to unravel which syphilis symptoms were from the spirochete bacterium and which were from the mercury cure that doctors had by then been prescribing for more than 500 years. As it turned out, the most deadly and debilitating symptom of syphilis, the lethal second-stage neuropathy, was actually acute mercury toxicity, not surprising, since mercury is nature's most toxic substance. AIDS is a chronic long-term breakdown of the immune system that can be caused by multiple factors, says Mark Gabrish Conlon, gay historian and publisher. Generally, more than one of them operating within any particular person with AIDS or with what has been described as AIDS. And at the top of that, in the West, would be recreational drug use, also pharmaceutical drug use and repeated infections, including diseases that are genuinely sexually transmitted, repeated antibiotic treatments for these, a lifestyle that involves a lot of partying and lack of nutrition. In the less developed world, AIDS is primarily a disease of malnutrition, starvation, and the endemic infections that have been part of those environments for years. Doctors Duesberg, Wilner, and others believed that AZT killed tens of thousands of Americans between 1986 and 1996 before less toxic chemotherapy drugs were introduced causing far more fatalities than the immune deficiencies associated with the recreational drugs during the first wave of the AIDS pandemic. A scientific study in the New England Journal of Medicine article in late July 1987 headlined The Toxicity of Azitothymidine, AZT, in the Treatment of Patients with AIDS and AIDS-Related Complex, 
and a comprehensive investigation by the Independent of London in May 1993, The Rise and Fall of AZT, both supported Duisburg's theory that AZT was a deadly killer of dubious efficacy against amorphous AIDS. Rudolf Nureyev and Arthur Ashe Rudolf Nureyev, greatest ballet dancer of all time, was friends with my parents. He visited our family home in the 1960s and 70s. Against his doctor's advice, he began taking AZT. Nureyev was HIV positive, but otherwise in robust health. His personal physician, Michel Kinesi, recognized the deadly effects of AZT and warned Nureyev not to take the drug. But Nureyev insisted, I want that drug. He became sick soon after commencing treatment and died in Paris in 1993 at age 54. That year, former Wimbledon champion Arthur Ashe also died at age 49. Ashe was also a family friend and a regular fixture at our family home at Hickory Hill and Hyannis Port. A heterosexual, Ash learned he was HIV positive in 1988. His doctor prescribed an extremely high AZT dose. In October 1992, Arthur wrote a column for the Washington Post, voicing his extreme misgivings about AZT. The confusion for AIDS patients like me is that there is a growing school of thought that HIV may not be the sole cause of AIDS and that standard treatments such as AZT actually make matters worse, Ash acknowledged, adding there may very well be unknown cofactors, but the medical establishment is too rigid to change the direction of basic research and or clinical trials. Ash wanted to stop taking AZT, but he didn't dare. What will I tell my doctors, he asked the New York Daily News. If Arthur Ashe's suspicions and Duisburg's suppositions are correct, Dr. Fauci would be the father of the AIDS pandemic and responsible for prolific deaths. So that story must never be found to be true. Is AZT Mass Murder? There is little question that the character of AIDS changed dramatically in the early 1990s with the proliferation of AZT. Kaposi's sarcoma uncoupled from the disease, and AIDS cases began to look increasingly like AZT poisoning. Then, at a certain point, when really that sort of AIDS virtually ceased to exist, there came a new type of AIDS, says John Lauritsen. So they expanded the definition, and also they began giving the anti-HIV drugs to people who were in fact not even sick, but merely positive on the HIV test. And in that case, of course, when they finally became sick enough from the AIDS drugs, they were called AIDS patients. I would simply have to say that my main concern is the gay men who have been murdered, Lauritsen observed. I don't think murder is too strong a word to use when you have a drug like AZT and all the nucleoside analogs that followed, more or less on its coattail, approved on the basis of fraudulent research, and where, as you know, Joseph Sonneben said, AZT is incompatible with life. 
Well, if it's incompatible with life, it's a poison. And if it's a poison that kills people in context like that, it is murder. Concurring with Sonneban's assessment, John Lauritsen accuses Dr. Fauci of conducting genocides against gay men and black Africans. The evidence seems to indicate that the proliferation of AZT increased death rates from AIDS dramatically. The annual mortalities from so-called AIDS during the early years of the pandemic for 1983 to 1987, prior to AZT's approval, were lower perhaps 10 to 15,000 people in a country of 250 million. It wasn't until the late 1980s when Dr. Fauci's AZT came along that the number of deaths attributed to AIDS shot up. According to the CDC, in the fifth full year of AIDS, 1986, 12,205 people with AIDS died in the United States. At that time, CDC, in a now familiar scheme to stoke pandemic fears, used deceptive protocols to inflate the body counts. The CDC's mortality numbers include anyone with an HIV-positive antibody status, even if the deceased had no AIDS-defining illness and instead succumbed to suicide, a drug overdose, a car accident, or a heart attack. The death rate climbed precipitously after the commercial introduction of AZT. In 1987, AIDS deaths rose by 46%, with 16,469 people dying. In 1988, as more and more people received AZT, the death toll rose to 21,176 and then to 27,879 in 1989. Death rates rose to 31,694 in 1990 and 37,040 in 1991. At the end of the 1980s, HHS's standard prescription for AZT was 1,500 milligrams a day. In 1988, the average survival time for patients taking AZT was four months. Even mainstream medicine couldn't overlook the fact that the administration of higher doses led to much higher death rates. At the beginning of the 1990s, health officials lowered the daily dose to 500 milligrams. The average lifespan of AZT patients rose to 24 months in 1997 as deaths attributed to AIDS plummeted. Afterwards, CDC changed its counting metrics to make it difficult to count annual AIDS deaths. In his History of the Era, historian Terry Michaels wrote, The CDC, for the years between about 1986 and 1996, created the illusion that tens of thousands in America died from AIDS or HIV in that decade, rather than AZT and other monotherapy nucleoside analog drugs. According to Dr. Klaus Kuhnlein, MD, a German internist and co-author of Virus Mania, most of the deaths attributed to AIDS or HIV disease, as eventually it would be called, from the mid-1980s to the mid-1990s, were the result of iatrogenic illness, 
resulting from prescription of high-dose, toxic, DNA chain-terminating chemotherapy, specifically azithromycin AZT, ending in premature death for scores of thousands of HIV-positive gay men, plus many hemophiliacs, IV drug users, sub-Saharan Africans, and a few heterosexuals unlucky enough to have taken the specious HIV test, like the late tennis star Arthur Ashe, who died in 1993. Kunlein observes, the treatment causes a very similar condition we would expect from an AIDS patient. That's why nobody noticed that there was something wrong with the treatment. The HIV dissent movement, propagandistically rendered the HIV denialist movement by the AIDS research establishment and media, was somewhat less under siege in Europe than in the United States. The HIV establishment was transnational, sparking and condemning as a unified globalist voice. However, in European countries where funding is less reliable upon Dr. Fauci's approval, dissenting professionals could generally keep working without intelligence to the state apparatus. Dr. Klaus Kunlein, an oncologist from Kiel, Germany, was less subject to the financial discipline by the state actors or the political hysteria that was censoring dissident scientists in the United States and was in some ways more of a threat to the HIV propaganda juggernaut than even Peter Duisberg, as he spoke from direct clinical experience. Kunlein saw his first AIDS patients in 1990 and treated several hundred over the decades in his very conventional Kiel Clinic. Ignoring HIV and instead treating each symptom, he got almost all of his patients out alive. I lost maybe a handful, he said in an email when contacted for this book. His views on AZT were unequivocal. We virtually killed a whole generation of AIDS patients without even noticing it, because the symptoms of the AZT intoxication were almost indistinguishable from AIDS, he said in one interview. He elucidated during an RT interview in 2010, during a Rethink conference in Vienna, when I worked at the university in Kiel, I witnessed the mass intoxication of the patients with AZT. AZT was the first recommended treatment, and we all know today that the dosage was much too high. We gave 1,500 milligrams on a daily basis, and that literally killed everybody that took this treatment. That is the reason why everybody believes that HIV is a deadly virus, but there is still no proof of this assumption. The reporter was incredulous, so Coline elaborated. They were all overtreated at that time and the reason why doctors didn't notice it was easy to explain, because the placebo control was stopped after four months, he replied. It was said that for ethical reasons, nobody can withhold AZT treatment. After these four months, the mortality rose tremendously in both groups. This mistreatment was the very reason why everybody believed HIV to be a deadly virus, and that HIV-positive tests put everybody at equal risk, which is completely nonsense. So a healthy pregnant mother today, an HIV-positive pregnant mother, is told she carries the same deadly virus as a hopeless IV drug addict. In an email, 
Quinline pegged the evidence against both HIV theory and AZT to three studies. Harm is usually underreported, he wrote. To prove it, you need three studies, the AZT licensing official study, the hemophiliac study in Nature, where editor John Maddox showed that the HIV-positive hemophiliacs started dying only the very year AZT was introduced. And lastly, the Concord-Lancet study, which showed the more AZT, the more death. In his October 30, 2020 expose, The Other Media Blackout, Wall Street Journal columnist and editorial board member Holman W. Jenkins, Jr. complained that the medical community has failed to acknowledge complicity in poisoning hundreds of thousands of human beings. The illness and death that resulted from high AZT doses administered in the 1980s and 1990s is irrefutable. From my personal contacts with people in the field, says Dr. David Rasnick, Ph.D., an AIDS researcher, chemist, and designer of protease inhibitors, I can tell you that I've found no evidence anywhere that people live longer, better lives who take these anti-HIV drugs, these protease inhibitors, either alone or in cocktails, as compared to a similar group of HIV-positive people who do not take these drugs. So I do not know where the evidence is for the claims that you see in the New York Times or on CNN or wherever you see it that people are living longer, better lives as a consequence of taking these drugs. Duisburg points out that the annual mortality rate of HIV positives undergoing antiviral therapy is 7 to 9 percent, far higher than the mortality rate of all HIV positives worldwide at about 1 to 2 percent per year. Furthermore, there is ample evidence that treated HIV positives die much faster of liver failure or cardiac failure than both HIV-infected individuals and AIDS patients who do not take AZT. Gays join Dr. Fauci. In marshalling institutional resistance to dissent from the growing cadre of prominent scientists and doctors, Dr. Fauci found an unlikely ally, the AIDS community. Beginning after his 1987 reconciliation with Larry Kramer in Toronto, Dr. Fauci quickly moved to build financial bridges to gay leadership and quiet dissent from AIDS activists. That year, he began by funding ACT UP and AMFAR and leading AIDS activists like Kramer and Martin Delaney. NIAID funneled extravagant annual public education grants to advocacy groups. The funding effectively muted their criticisms of Dr. Fauci. The AIDS establishment, hospitals, medical and research centers, and pharmaceutical companies created opulently paid consulting contracts for important members of gay organizations. The gay community thereby became powerful gatekeepers for the AIDS establishment. Other political, economic, and ideological rationales helped Dr. Fauci recruit gay community leaders to his campaign to build a cancel culture against Duisburg and drown out his voice in the liberal mainstream press. 
in an era when Christian conservatism was so powerful that it credibly claimed to have put Ronald Reagan in the White House, ideology and medical opinions attributing the gay disease to orgies and excess partying tended to feed anti-gay bigotry. The gay community, therefore, happily endorsed Dr. Fauci's one-bug theory. There were compelling mercantile drivers as well. During the 1970s, the principal financial supports of the gay press were ads for the $50 million-a-year pauper industry and for the bars that flourished on pauper sales. As Ian Young explains in The Pauper's Story, the rise and fall and rise of the gay drug in steam. During the 70s and early 80s, much of the gay press, including the most influential glossy publications, came to rely on Popper's ads for a huge chunk of its revenue, and Popper's became an accepted part of gay sex. There was even a comic strip called Popper's by Jerry Mills. The unwritten agreement was almost never breached, Popper's ads appeared only in gay publications. The gay press glossed over urgent medical warnings from scientists about the dangers of Popper's. The Advocate, a popular U.S. magazine for homosexuals, refused to print letters from dissident scientists like Duisburg while accepting parades of Popper's advertisements from Great Lakes Products, the era's largest manufacturer of sex drugs. Those advertisements exonerated paupers from any connection to AIDS, openly declaring them harmless. Pharmaceutical companies, including Hoffman LaRoche, invested money in the gay community with innumerable advertisements for AIDS medications. Burroughs Welcome ran an ad for paupers calling amyl nitrite, i.e. paupers, the real thing. Gay publications and organizations continued to promote paupers and censure stories about their health risks. His historical cultivation of relationships with gay leaders was one of the factors that made Dr. Fauci a darling of liberals during the early COVID crisis. Numerous other historical and personal factors induced liberals to accept Dr. Fauci without scrutiny. Blind faith in St. Anthony Fauci may go down in history as the fatal flaw of contemporary liberalism and the destructive force that subverted American democracy, our constitutional government, and global leadership. Deadly Viruses and Mycoplasma As the HIV-AIDS hypothesis came under attack for its many discrepancies and internal contradictions, Scientists besides Duisburg were discovering bugs that provided more plausible culprits in the AIDS pandemic. Among those competing hypotheses were two advanced individually by Robert Gallo and Luc Montagnier. It's probable that diplomacy, self-interest, and honed survival instincts prompted both men to introduce their pathogens as cofactors that might work alongside HIV to trigger AIDS. Critics pointed out that the new pathogens these scientists uncovered were so clearly deadly on their own that they hardly needed HIV. The discovery of these genuinely lethal germs made HIV superfluous and redundant to explaining the pandemic. 
but for these gentlemen it was obligatory to genuflect to the inviolable orthodoxy that anointed HIV as AIDS' ultimate cause. They may, in fact, have seen their discoveries as salvatory of the original HIV hypothesis. It was becoming increasingly challenging to credibly claim that HIV, which remained dormant for decades within its host, could somehow suddenly become virulent, the most deadly disease in history, without some external provocation. HHV-6 In 1986, Robert Gallo announced the discovery of human herpes virus, HHV-6. This new pathogen was no benign retrovirus. It was instead a savage, cell-killing DNA virus. Gallo's lab had found the murderous HHV-6 killer cells in the blood of AIDS-infected men and in patients suffering from chronic fatigue syndrome, CFS, in immune deficiency disease extremely similar to AIDS that had appeared in heterosexuals on the exact same timeline as AIDS appeared in homosexuals. Many critics already suspected the two diseases were one and the same. Gallo's discovery seemed to fortify that supposition. In a 1995 article titled Human Herpes Virus 6 in AIDS, Gallo says HHV6 may act as an accelerating factor in HIV infection because HHV6 can also infect and kill CD8 plus T cells, natural killer cells, and mononuclear phagocytes all major components of the immune system. Ironically, Gallo's discovery of HHV-6 might have won him the Nobel Prize if he hadn't jumped the gun a decade earlier by stealing HIV from Montagnier. None of the embarrassing questions about how in the world the seemingly benign HIV retrovirus could cause deadly disease bedeviled his lethal new killing machine. While HIV was never shown to be cytocidal, HHV-6 had a murderous affinity for CD4 and T-cell in potential effects on the immune system and brains. Gallo declared that HHV-6 was a major source of disease progression in AIDS. On May 11, 1988, the Miami Herald reported Gallo's announcement a newly discovered highly contagious herpes virus might play a role in causing several types of cancer and could be a co-cofactor in wiping out the immune systems of AIDS patients, one of the nation's premier virologists, Robert Gallo, said Tuesday. The Herald also wrote, Since the AIDS virus kills only a small percentage of T4 cells at a time, Gallo said the new herpes virus, HHV-6, if proven to be the co-cofactor, could explain the total annihilation of T4 cells in AIDS patients. The virus kills cells after using them to replicate, he says. The Herald quotes Gallo as saying, So if a co-cofactor is involved in the development of AIDS, and I'm not convinced it's absolutely needed, then we want to consider this one strongly. Charles Ortlib told me that Gallo's study struck me as being backwards, if Gallo's new DNA virus explains the total annihilation of T4 cells, why would it need a cofactor? 
the cofactor in this mystery would have to be HIV, not HHV-6. Some scientists had similar reservations. HHV-6 didn't seem to need a retrovirus wingman. Duisberg remarked dryly that to the extent that Gallo's newly discovered pathogen was partnering with HIV, then HHV-6 was the senior partner in the collaboration. I can't help wondering if it occurred then to Gallo that if only he had not impetuously stolen Montaigne's discovery four years earlier, he might have collected his long-sought Nobel for his own authentic discovery of a much more plausible AIDS virus. Alas, it was not to be. But Dr. Fauci had committed his agency to the HIV hypothesis, and Gallo had built his career on HIV, even if he stole it from Montaigne, says Charles Ortleb. When Gallo began that battle with Fauci, says Ortleb, the agency was already fully committed to the HIV theory and could not afford any signs of retreat. I asked, why would Gallo not pull rank? Ortleb answered, Gallo is a classic sociopath. He knows that his survival means acquiescing to Fauci. Following Gallo's Natural Killer Cells article, other researchers confirmed the links between HHV-6 and AIDS. In 1996, Constance Knox, Ph.D., and Donald R. Kerrigan, Ph.D., published a study demonstrating that 100% of HIV-infected patients studied, 10 out of 10, had active human herpes virus 6A infections in their lymph nodes early in the course of their disease. This finding led Knox and Kerrigan to conclude that active HHV-6 infections appear relatively early in the course of HIV disease, and in vitro studies suggest that HHV-6 is capable of breaking HIV latency, with the potential for helping to catalyze the progression of HIV infection to AIDS. In April 1986, Dr. Knox stated in an interview with the New York native, we're finding HHV-6 in the lymph nodes early active infection. This virus is replicating. This is unheard of for any other opportunistic infection, even TB. Knox said she believed that HIV kind of acts as a wet nurse to HHV-6A. Knox and Kerrigan found that every AIDS patient had active replication of HHV-6A in every stage of AIDS, from their diagnosis to their autopsies, with many having CD4 plus cell counts over 700. With HHV-6A, there were none of the bewildering questions about how a seemingly benign retrovirus could possibly cause all that carnage. It's also much more destructive. It kills very well, and it destroys tissue very well. It can infect the brain, the lungs, the lymphoid organs, and the bone marrow. When New York native interviewer Nina Ostrom asked Knox, can HHV-6A do everything that HIV can do? Knox gave this chilling answer. As far as immunologic damage, oh, HHV-6A does it much more efficiently than HIV. Citing data from multiple studies by diverse scientists, Knox added, where we have seen HHV-6A in tissue, we see dead tissue. 
and where you see HIV alone, you don't see dead tissue. You don't see destroyed organs and scar formation. And that's what you see when you see HHV6A. We find replacement of the normal architecture of the lymph nodes with scar tissue. HHV6A kills it. It kills the lymph node tissue. Knox parroted the obligatory language that HHV6 was acting in concert with HIV. That language would preserve her from reputational and financial suicide. I think they're a team, she said. And when the two of them are present, they induce the production of more of each other. It's a mutually enhancing relationship. It's our feeling that if you could interrupt or limit or suppress the HHV6A infection, the levels of HIV would go down tremendously, and HIV would become just a chronic viral infection. We don't have any evidence looking in the tissue that HIV is responsible for any of the destruction. And if you think about it, HIV infects patients for years, a decade or more, without progressing to AIDS. When you look in their tissues, you have to ask how you can have such a long-term viral infection and have no damage. NIH quickly cut off funding for Knox and for anyone else who wanted to research HHV-6. When Nina Ostrom asked, why can't you get more funding for this research, Knox replied, well, I don't know if you've been tracking the kinds of exposés that Science Magazine and others have published that 80% of AIDS research monies are retained within the federal government programs on AIDS research. I think the science is very inbred, and I think there's been a real resistance to entertaining hypotheses or directions of AIDS research that aren't looking specifically at HIV, and that is the basic problem. Our studies themselves have been enthusiastically received, but the funding hasn't followed and that is funding through the federal agencies, like the NIH. That summer, Italian researcher Dario De Luca published his findings in the Journal of Clinical Microbiology, reporting HHV6 in the lymph nodes of 22% of chronic fatigue syndrome patients and only 4% of healthy people. This research raised the possibility that AIDS, which affects gay men, is the same disease as CFS, which became widespread in heterosexuals and in virtual lockstep with AIDS in the early 1980s. Surveys of CFS patient groups in 35 states show an exponential rise in cases produced each year since the 1970s. This curious temporal and case production relationship with the AIDS epidemic prompted many researchers to characterize CFS as an AIDS epiphenomenon. Gallo's discovery and Knox's revelations suggested that the new human herpes virus, HHV-6, might be a critical causative cofactor shared by both AIDS and CFS. In June 1989, CFS research pioneer Dr. Paul Cheney, Ph.D., M.D., testified before Congress that CFS might have a relationship with the AIDS epidemic. In January 1993, six months after the Amsterdam conference, Dr. Anthony Komaroff at Harvard University and his co-workers 
published a study that showed that brain lesions developed in CFS patients who had human herpes virus 6 active in their bodies. Such revelations could only have terrified Tony Fauci. Ever since the 1992 Amsterdam meeting, Dr. Fauci had been insisting that CFS was a psychosomatic disease. The suggestion that it might be related to AIDS threatened the entire HIV paradigm. In their 1988 Natural Killer Cells paper, Lusso and Gallo had quietly disclosed that they had found HHV-6 was infecting and killing NK cells in both AIDS and CFS patients. They identified the problem in both sets of patients, said Knox, so it makes sense that the HHV-6A would also be a problem in chronic fatigue syndrome. When Gallo and Lusso conducted a trial treating half their AIDS patients with acyclovir, a remedy against herpes, and half with AZT alone, they found a significant prolongation of life in the patients who had AZT and acyclovir, as opposed to AZT alone. Said Knox, in laboratory testing, HHV-6A is sensitive to acyclovir, so we have a curiosity as well. I mean, that would be pretty dandy, because certainly acyclovir has less toxicity than AZT. And if you're talking about treating healthy people in a clinical trial, you're looking for something that people can take orally. These kinds of findings threaten to derail and discredit Anthony Fauci's entire HIV-AIDS paradigm. What, after all, would be the implications if a mild, off-patent remedy like acyclovir could safely treat AIDS more effectively than Dr. Fauci's expensive pharmacopoeia of deadly chemotherapy poisons? He choked off any further funding for HHV-6 research, despite Knox's potentially life-saving discovery of the efficacy of acyclovir against AIDS. Mycoplasma Dr. Xing Lo, the chief researcher in charge of AIDS programs for the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, was one of the many researchers baffled by Anthony Fauci's unconventional claim that antibodies, heretofore the signal of a robust immune response, should uniquely with HIV instead be the signal for impending death. That was a bridge too far for Dr. Lowe. He took the conventional position that the presence of the antibodies to HIV, far from being a sign of doom, is proof that the body has coped successfully with the virus. There is no good explanation for why and how the virus breaks out of the antibody protection, complained Dr. Lowe. I'm not saying that HIV plays no role in AIDS, the data shows a clear correlation with disease. He recited the mandatory disclaimer, but AIDS is much more complicated than HIV. In 1986, Dr. Lowe announced that he had detected a previously unknown organism in cells taken from AIDS patients. Dr. Lowe said that he believed the new organism, a bacterium-like creature known as a mycoplasma, worked with HIV to cause AIDS. Dr. Lowe could not find the organism in any healthy individuals. When he injected his mycoplasma into four silvered-leaf monkeys, 
Three quickly developed low-grade fevers. All four lost weight and then died between seven and nine months of infection. During autopsy, Dr. Lowe found mycoplasma in their brains, livers, and spleens. That does not happen with HIV. Dr. Lowe also found the mycoplasma, dubbed mycoplasma incognitus, in the damaged tissue of six HIV-negative human beings, perhaps CFS sufferers, who had died with suppressed immune systems after suffering from suspiciously AIDS-like symptoms. For nearly three years, mainstream medicine and the captive mainstream and science media dutifully ignored Dr. Lowe's research. A dozen scientific journals turned down Xing Lo's studies for publication before the Journal of Tropical Medicine agreed to print his findings. Despite his impressive credentials and his prestigious post as a top military scientist, Dr. Lowe's attempts to find funding failed. Dr. Lowe's research posed a unique annoyance for Dr. Fauci. Because he was a top military doctor with his own laboratory, he could not be easily dismissed, bullied, or defunded. Then, in December 1989, Dr. Fauci opted to meet this threat from the military with a direct frontal assault. NIAID dispatched a dozen of Dr. Fauci's most skeptical specialists to investigate Dr. Lowe's data. Dr. Fauci flew his leading experts in AIDS and other infectious diseases to San Antonio, Texas for the confrontation, expecting to obliterate Dr. Lowe and to discredit his theory. Dr. Fauci's panel members quizzed Dr. Lowe mercilessly for three days before surrendering to the conclusion that Dr. Lowe had made a momentous discovery. The documentation was absolutely solid, said Joseph Tully, head of mycoplasma programs for NIAID. The newly converted NIAID participants formally recommended further study of the link between the mycoplasma and AIDS and experiments with drugs that could kill the new microbe. The recommendation apparently displeased Dr. Fauci. We have not been pulled into the AIDS programs in any real way, Tully complained in 1990. Thirty-five years after Dr. Lowe's initial announcement, NIAID has still funded no research on Dr. Lowe's mycoplasma hypothesis. At the June 1990 San Francisco AIDS Conference, Luc Montagnier made his tectonic announcement that the HIV virus is harmless and passive, a benign virus. He added that he had discovered that HIV only becomes dangerous in the presence of a second organism. He described a tiny bacteria-like bug called a mycoplasma. His laboratory had demonstrated that in culture with his new mycoplasma, HIV becomes a vicious killer. Montaigneier declared that he now believes that HIV is a peaceful virus that becomes lethal only when combined with mycoplasma in fertins. As Montaigneier spoke, Dr. Sheng Lo sat in the audience, basking in vindication. Dr. Lowe's important new ally, Montagnier, the Nobel laureate of AIDS, had independently discovered the same mycoplasma and concluded, like Lowe, 
that it was the primary cause of the immune system collapse known as AIDS. The two had not shared their data. Separately, they had made the same earth-shaking discovery four months apart. In April of that year, Montaigneier published his findings in Research in Virology, reporting that HIV and the microscopic pathogen react together, causing the body's cells to burst. Even more exciting, he had discovered that in his test tubes, tetracycline stopped the mycoplasma's destruction entirely in its tracks. Montaigne's findings had transformative implications for AIDS treatment. They suggested that AIDS could be effectively treated and demolished with common, patent-expired antibiotics instead of deadly and expensive chemotherapy concoctions. At the San Francisco conference, Dr. Lowe was almost the only person in the room who was excited. Of the 12,000 people who attended the conference, only 200 attended Montagnier's talk, and almost half of them exited before he finished. Characteristically, the multi-billion-dollar international research and development establishment opted to ignore his discovery. Peter Duisberg said, there was Montaigneier, the Jesus of HIV, and they threw him out of the temple. Who were these people who are so much wiser, so much smarter than Luc Montaigneier, asks Harry Rubin, the dean of American retrovirology. He became an outlaw as soon as he started saying that HIV might not be the only cause of AIDS. When asked for an interview concerning Dr. Lowe's work, NIAID director Anthony Fauci said through spokesperson Mary Jane Walker that he will not talk about mycoplasma or any other AIDS cofactor. In a film interview with Brent Leung in 2006, Tony Fauci said cofactors are not necessary. The data that indicate that any different type of infection like mycoplasma or something like that is a necessary cofactor I believe those theories have been debunked. As usual, Dr. Fauci never cited the study that debunked the work of America's top military AIDS researcher or the Nobel laureate who discovered HIV. Thirty-four years later, with over half a trillion dollars spent on AIDS research, Dr. Fauci has not budgeted one dollar to study the role of Lowe's and Montaigne's mycoplasma or in gallows and Knox's HHV-6 virus in the etiology of AIDS. Between 1981 and 2020, U.S. taxpayers alone shelled out $640 billion for AIDS research, focused almost exclusively on developing drugs to address Dr. Fauci's sketchy HIV hypothesis. Yet the growing list of medications hasn't demonstrably extended the life of a single patient, and the cure for AIDS is still nowhere in sight. The minute someone suggests that the orthodoxy might be wrong, the establishment starts to call him crazy, or a quack, Rubin continued. One week you're a great scientist, the next week you're a jerk. Science has become the new Church of America, and is closing off all room for creative, productive dissent. After suggesting in print, two years earlier, 
that HIV might need a co-cofactor to cause AIDS, Gallo went dark. Gallo today refuses to discuss the matter. The normally loquacious and combative Gallo refused my request to talk about HHV-6. AIDS and Fear In a rational universe, or in a functioning democracy, combatants would duke out the incendiary HIV-AIDS dispute in an open public debate in the scientific literature between the foremost establishment scientists and the best credentialed dissenting ones. But in Tony Fauci's authoritarian technocracy, the ruling medical cabal refuses to allow this sort of dialogue. Like Inquisition priests, HIV's high clergy stubbornly resist the possibility that they might be wrong. From the outset, the HIV-AIDS religion has seen its survival in moral absolutism, outright discrimination, and merciless suppression of doubt. Dr. Harvey Bealey argues that the medical establishment's top concern is not public health, but their own reputations and perquisites. The scientific and medical communities have a great deal of face to lose. It is not much of an exaggeration to state that when the HIV-AIDS hypothesis is finally recognized as wrong, the entire institution of science will lose the public's trust, and science itself will experience fundamental, profound, and long-lasting changes. The scientific community has risked its credibility by standing by the HIV theory for so long. This is why doubting the HIV hypothesis is now tantamount to doubting science itself, and this is why dissidents face excommunication. As Kerry Mullis says in his book, Dancing Naked in the Mind Field, what people call science today is probably very similar to what was called science in 1634. Galileo was told to recant his beliefs or be excommunicated. People who refuse to accept the commandments of the AIDS establishment are basically told the same thing. The quasi-religious nature of the debate is evident in the loathing and pious moralizing expressed toward Duisburg by an unnamed Berkeley scientist interviewed by Celia Farber for her 2006 book, Serious Adverse Events, An Uncensored History of AIDS. He did it to himself, you know. You see, he wouldn't give up an idea. He went at it with a hammer. He may well be 3,000% right, but he upset an awful lot of people. Nobody believed in him because what he was doing was overturning generally held views. They felt betrayed. You don't just stand up and say everybody is wrong. In her book, Science Sold Out, Does HIV Really Cause AIDS? Rebecca Colshaw writes, The persistence of this intellectually bankrupt theory in the public mind is attributable entirely to the campaign of fear discrimination and terror that has been waged aggressively by a powerful group of people whose sole motivation was and is behavior control. Yes, the money and the vast interests of the pharmaceutical industry and government-funded scientists are important, but the seeds of the HIV-AIDS hypothesis are sowed with fear. If the fear were to end, 
the myth would end. Please go to the Children's Health Defense website for the acknowledgments and notes by chapter, updates to data, and new information that becomes available on any of the subject matter covered in this audiobook. Truth or damage to the truth.